0: Hello ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Loopcast. Today I'm very, very excited to have Humara Khan on the line, so thank you for coming on the show, Humaira. Thank you very much for having me. Today we're going to tackle the issue of foreign fighters and fighters that have joined the Islamic State, and we're going to put in a little bit of countering violent extremism in here as well. And for those that may not know of Humara's background, she is the exec- Executive Director of Muflehun, and that's a think tank which specializes in preventing radicalization and countering violent extremism. So she has a very exciting, tough, and I'm sure very rewarding job. So, um, thank you once again for being on the show, Himara.
1: Yeah, thank you very much. Looking forward to this.
0: Why don't we start on this topic by looking at the history of foreign fighters in the Islamic world? Well, I think
1: the idea of actually going and fighting for someone else's cause is not specific or limited to the Islamic world. It's actually something which has been done for over centuries um, by many, many groups. So does it exist um in like majority Muslim countries? Yes. It it also goes back to what is the cause that they are being pulled towards. And so in, you know, we have sort of in the recent memory, you think of certain uh, certain conflicts more than others. Where just we saw the you know foreign fighters, and that's what we're calling them now, foreign fighters. Um, but they've been around for I guess centuries. really. And, and I know, like for example, the, the ones we think of mostly, uh, you know, we start we're starting thinking about it probably from Afghanistan is the one um, where we know there was Mujahideen, and then you had a whole bunch of others. But also in like recent history, it wasn't just Afghanistan. It was also places like Bosnia, Chechnya. Um, You named the conflict, and there have been people who have uh, gone to help. And again, uh, again, not just these conflicts, but so many others.
0: So, looking at Afghanistan and Bosnia, as you said, do we see any similarities with fighters of today that right now Syria is the place, Syria and Iraq? So, do we see any similarities between the fighters of today? Or also differences between the fighters of today and the fighters of Afghanistan and Bosnia.
1: So I think I would make I sort of separate out the fighters from the foreign fighters, because, um, for example, in a place like Afghanistan, right, where where they were dealing with the Soviet invasion, and the Afghans were involved, and for them it was an existential um, fight. In the fighters who. Who, the foreign fighters who, went, who ended up going there actually were, I would say, a lot of them were older than what we're seeing today. So the age group of, of the people who are going in today, especially from Western countries into existing conflicts, uh, it's a lot younger now. Uh, what used to happen in Afghanistan and Bosnia, some of them actually were coming in with training. A lot of them were actually coming in with resources. So they actually had uh, funding. So they were coming in funded. And what we're seeing certainly from Western countries who are going into these conflicts, uh, for example, in Iraq and Syria today, um, they are younger and they're not coming necessarily with their own funding. Now, if you look at who are the people who are going to Iraq and Syria, obviously Western foreign fighters are not the the majority, right? Of the 12,000, the number 12,000 is the one that seems to be current right now. Uh, Of those, there's supposed to be about 2,000 or so who are from Western countries. But the rest of them, uh, the majority of them, are actually coming from uh, the Middle East and North, North Africa.
0: And what areas in the Middle East uh, and North Africa are the more prominent areas? Um, so what areas do we get the greater number of foreign fighters going to Syria in Iraq?
1: Uh, we're seeing Tunisia is one of them. We're seeing Saudi Arabia. Um, we saw Libya and the other the the fourth group which is seems to be strong, uh, is actually the Chechens. So there are contingents who have come from Chechnya. And what's interesting about the ones who are coming from Chechnya is they're not just coming as individuals, they're coming as uh existing units. And so the whole unit is coming to go fight over there.
0: That's really interesting. And I would think those that are coming from Chechnya have maybe better military skills than other countries. Is that something that is yes. a correct statement, or
1: <laughs> yes, it's it. It certainly seems to They seem to be uh have more training than your average nineteen-year-old who is going from UK.
0: And for me, when I think of Chechnya, I think of one of the main figures we tend to hear about. Um, his war name, so to speak, is Omar the Chechen. And I mean, I know that there's a lot of um, speculations that he is now a military advisor for the Islamic State. So, I mean, what does that say since there are a lot of fighters, as you said, coming from Chechnya that are fairly militarized? I mean, what does that say about Chechnya and this idea of joining this jihad in Syria and Iraq? I mean, of course, Chechnya had a very turbulent past and violent past. So does that reflect in the people that are going to Syria and Iraq? Or are these another generation that are looking for another fight?
1: I think it, uh, it's it's now it's, it's very context-specific. So, for example, there will definitely be groups who are going there because they're looking for the next place to fight, right? They, they're sort of, uh, they are as close to mercenaries as you can think of, right? Because for them, it's, okay, where's my next, where's the next conflict zone that I need to do go to? And they're just going to move to the next conflict. Now, for some of the, the units which are coming to Chechnya, you can imagine that. On the other hand, if you're looking at individuals who are traveling from countries like, again, the, some of the English-speaking countries, or if you look at you know, UK, or if you're looking at the Scandinavian countries, um, again, different profiles, because that's, that's, that does not seem to be uh, the reason or how they're coming in. They actually don't have an experience with fighting. They're going in for various reasons. Mm-hmm. Some of them are going in, obviously. There they There's a group who's going there for ideological reasons because they feel that the cause is just. Um, but there's some who are going in because, and they have no clue about the religion. And they're sort of just, oh, we, we learn it along the way. And they're just going there because they think uh, it, it's, it, it would be cool to, to join it. And I know Thomas Haghammer has actually talked about the whole concept of jihadi quo. Um There are others, for example, we're seeing who, who go in there because they have family members who were involved or have been involved in a previous fight. And so the, the conduit for them is 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 through kinship ties rather than because they necessarily strongly believe in that particular fight or in the ideology. Now, when people are actually, once they arrive there, obviously, it doesn't matter where they start off in terms of how, convinced they are, there is that indoctrination period which happens when they're there to make sure that they are buying into the ideology piece. And so people are joining again for a variety of reasons, not all of them are ideological, but certainly after they enter that conflict zone, they they are indoctrinated.
0: I saw recently there was an article, I forgot which publication it was, it might have been Washington Post or Economist, one of the two. Um, where they're saying certain foreign fighters want to come back home because what they thought they signed up for wasn't what they thought it was in their mind when they went off, which was quite ironic, of course. But as you said, there's a lot of people that have no idea what they're really getting into. They have an idea of maybe a great adventure, as Thomas Heghammer kind of alludes to this adventurism idea. So looking at this, and as you said, every foreign fighter it, or It's a different reason for every person to go to Syria or Iraq at this time in history. I mean, there really doesn't seem to be any demographic for today's foreign fighter, other than, as you said, they tend to be a younger age than in Afghanistan. And what might be the reasons for that right there, this younger age, compared to the Mujahideen of Afghanistan? Ah, the
1: younger age. Well, one thing we see is that the ones who are being recruited, at least out of the West, are ones who know, have a, perhaps a superficial understanding of ideology. And so it is easy to deceive them into thinking that what they're going for, the cause itself, is a just cause. The fact that they even think that this is jihad, right, even though it's going against the tenets of that. The, the fact that some of them even think that this is actually a legitimate islamic state or this is a legitimate caliphate even though everything they do about every, literally everything about it is is not legitimate and you cannot justify it i mean there's nothing islamic about it it's not a state and yet people actually are believing the rhetoric so in some cases it's actually easier to manipulate people when they're younger or when they have uh, less of a understanding of what you know what it is because if you haven't got your filters up or you don't know how to distinguish between right and wrong to start off with, it's actually easier to deceive them.
0: And how do you think things like social media, per se, are adding to this? Because we've seen ISIS, Islamic State, whatever you want to call them, having a pretty good and pretty savvy media campaign, which, as you said, it makes everything taking place in Syria and Iraq almost like this cool jihad. It's the cool thing to do, and and if it is catering to a younger audience, it could be quite seductive and very interesting, and, and one of these ideas like, oh my, my, man, I want to be part of this. I've got to be a part of this history in the making. So how has social media affected this, and how is it possibly, how are there ways with countering violent extremism to Reverse this, or create a different message for young people out there that might be having thoughts of joining a jihad.
1: So, I mean, social media is is a is a phenomenon we see every day. It it, it doesn't. It's not just related to people who fight, right, or people who are looking to join a terrorist group or a part of a terrorist group. If you look at how ubiquitous it is in terms of how we use it in our lives, now, for you take your average. 17 to 30 year old, 18 to 30 year old, right? Think of how they use social media. For that, for that age group to use social media or to be interacting through social media is nothing new. So the fact that this social media is being used a lot by ISIS is actually not a surprise. It, it feeds; it's right aligned with just the way the world is moving. And it's not the recruitment online recruitment is not something new. We actually saw. Um, online recruitment as far back as Bosnia. Now, it didn't used to be Twitter at that time. Twitter and Facebook you know, didn't exist. But there was certainly IRC. And there used to be very open discussions on IRC about going and fighting and is it, is it uh, legitimate and sh- who should go and actually trying to call people to go join Bosnia. And it, The attraction was a lot stronger for people who were coming from Europe because they had greater access. And, and there was always, you know, there was and where, how Bosnia was and how Syria started off was actually very similar. Because the initial, the initial call was to come and help the Syrian people. Get rid of the oppression, get rid of the regime. And that's what they were going in there. And as they started now, since then, we had, you know, we had various groups. You saw all the, the splintering of the group, the groups. Right? Um, ISI became, there was Jabhat al-Nusra, then they became ISIS, they split off from Al-Qaeda, now they claim their IS. But in all of this, the initial, the initial thrust, and for certainly a lot of people, the idea was, we're going to help the Syrians. These are an oppressed people. That, that goal actually seems to be left on the wayside by ISIS. And for some of the people who, who, who seem interested in coming back the disillusionment actually seems to come from from exactly that that you know they went in there to try and help the syrians but now it just seems that the groups are fighting and killing each other and so muslim killing muslim for no other reason other than for power and glory doesn't is not it has nothing to do with well the syrians or getting rid of oppression or jihad or being legitimate or it's just plain it's all out it's murder so that has has played into it now, how do you actually counter it? Well, again, um, I mean, but that, like, can you counter it just using social media? It's never enough, I guess. So social media is, is a communication tool, right? At the end of the day, these are different ways of communicating. Some of it is synchronous and some of it is asynchronous. What starts off in terms of the, 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 the processes, or uh, it's not even a process but some of the things that the dynamics that you're seeing are playing out. So it might, might start off with someone engaging on Twitter, right? It's asynchronous, they're finding people. You can have a conversation, but it's not a live conversation. As people get groomed into, hey, they actually are really interested, um, some of those communications, then you can start to see some of the real-time communications. Some of that is on Twitter, but they also move off to other forums. You see a lot of movement on Ask.fm. Then you also have Kick. Right, and all of these forums are again, quite uh, question and answer. It's it's interactive, um, but it still it still allows you to stay anonymous. But the thing is that after that, the 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 interaction moves uh, to other venues. So you have communication, direct communication through email. You actually have Skype, right? There's a lot of interaction, and as the relationship between the people is growing, or the recruiter and the person they're trying to pull in is growing. There's a lot more engagement, and it's it's, it's moves further and further away from the public world. So how are you going to... Now because there's a, these are trust relationships which are being built, when you're dealing with counter-violent extremism, and you're talking about now an intervention for someone who is considering traveling, you actually will, are going to have to deconstruct not just the ideology or the thought process, but you actually need to have a relationship or you need to build the relationships so you can even have the communication. And when we talk about countering violent extremism, right, there's a spectrum of activities or a spectrum of programming which is needed. So there's programs around prevention, there's intervention, right? So these are assuming that the, the people, for both prevention, you're basically trying to increase the barriers to entry. When you're looking at intervention, now these are people who are thinking of action. They actually haven't, taken criminal action yet right and this is where you can talk about you know deconstructing the narrative um, various types of intervention you're basically countering the narrative but what we talk about is actually developing the meta-narrative because you can't just it's not just about delegitimizing the narrative which is used to recruit them you actually also have to give a message of what is the correct understanding or what is the correct thing to do so we call that the meta-narrative for someone who has gone beyond that stage and they are actually now they're traveling or they want to go fight at that stage, you're going to have interdiction. That's when law enforcement is going to involve and you know, there's, there's no way around it. And then the last part of this is, is rehabilitation and whether you talk about psychological disengagement or physical disengagement, right? Both of those are needed. And, and that's about reentry into society. Unfortunately, like, when we talk about CVE, especially on the um, invested countries, there's there's been a lot of programming around prevention. Unfortunately, most of that programming has not been CVE-specific. It's actually been what we call CVE-relevant. So you have programs which seem nice. They have a lot of stuff around community engagement. You have your sports clubs. You have all these other things which are supposed to be alternatives. But they they sort of, they are, if you start to look at, hey, is this actually going to change the mind or is this actually going to impact you? It's hard to find the direct link, if any. So those CVE relevant programs are good, but CVE specific programming where you're actually, you know, talking about violent extremism, you're talking about the grievances. And those grievances are real. I mean, when you start off talk about, hey, oppression of people, that's real. There are people who are oppressed. You look at societies here, Europe, wherever. Um, the living conditions of people is not necessarily all this good. They are that individuals also have have personal grievances, right? So all of those have to be they have to be acknowledged and they have to be addressed. And so there's often very few places that you can actually have. Um, safe spaces to actually have those hard conversations and so cv specific programming is is sadly not there's not enough of it um intervention programs yes there are certain like they're trying and some countries have tried them more than others um i know that for example channel has uh in uk they have channel in the us uh for example we actually have I will not say a similar program because channel is actually initiated through law enforcement. But the programs that we have been running in Muflihun actually has been, you know, we've come across someone who is thinking of traveling. Now, whether it's going off to join the Shabab or they want to go join Syria, you know, we've had various cases, and but they actually haven't taken action yet. So in those cases, it's about getting them uh, counseling and intervention and counseling at different levels. Uh, to actually talk them down from going off and traveling, but also talk them down from their actual, like what they believe in and why they think they want to go join. So, but again, this is like a a program that we're running, which is not, you know, it's not from the government itself. And the last part, no, and interdiction we all know about, right? Hey, the government gets, you know, the law enforcement is involved. That's just, you know, they're going to disrupt whatever plot or whatever actions they're finding. But rehabilitation, or the concept of actually disengaging both psychologically and physically, that's something which is very underserved. Uh, There's very few countries who are actually doing any sort of rehab. There's few of them who want to talk about it. This year was the first time we saw European countries actually talk about some of these programs. UK is saying we want to do rehabilitation. Um... Some of the Scandinavian countries are developing rehabilitation programs. Now, can we do that over here in the U.S.? Oh, that would be great. Because the idea of actually having exit ramps, right, for people who might be disillusioned or they might realize that what they went in there for, what they thought they were getting into is not what they actually got into. right? It would be important to try and get them lure them back. You know, just like they're being seduced on one side, we have to entice them back so they can recognize that what they're doing is wrong and they have to get out of there.
0: So one thing you mentioned, which the term really stuck in my head, is deconstructing the narrative. And that seems like a very important step for those that haven't gone to, let's say, Syria or Iraq, but are thinking about it. I mean, what kind of steps do you take to even start doing that? Is it... (laughs) Focusing on their personal life as well as religious ideas, what they might think is religious compared to what is actually taking place in the Islamic State. Um, you know, is it? I don't know. What is it? Give me, give me some of the steps because it it sounds fascinating.
1: It's not an or; it's an and. Okay. Uh, yes, you actually end up do talking about the personal stuff. You end up talking. There is the political, there's a the psychological, there's the emotional, there's the dealing with issues around families. It's like everything put together um, you it ends up being addressed, which means that when we work, um, we work through particular imams so that they actually have the, they are to help create those trusted relationships with the youth that we are developing interventions around. So this is around the face-to-face interventions. Um, and part of it is that, especially in several of these cases that we have seen, there is there is family dysfunction at some level. Um, so in those cases, you actually have to deal with that uh, because you can't you can't sort of there there are so many you know for any human right Yeah, there's our lives are entangled right, and all these various things come together in in interesting messy ways for each person. And so when you're trying to pull it apart, you, you have all of those dimensions have to be dealt with. And they have to be dealt with very um, pragmatically, but also very carefully and gently, right? Also means that these are things which you can't hurry along. So it's things that take time. And the, the face-to-face interventions then span months and months and months. I think the longest case that we are actually dealing with has been, it's been about two and a half years. Um, and the person is obviously the, the, the frequency of engagement with him has, de- has decreased over time because, you know, he's, he sort of shifted where he, or how he thinks he doesn't want to go out and fight anymore. Um, but there's still that regular sort of checking in and making sure, Hey, are you okay? How are things going? How's life going? Um, trying to make sure that all the issues around family and life and jobs and everything is. You know, life is rolling along along in a regular way, and the incentive or the you know they're changing the company they're keeping. They're not going back to some of the old ideas. They're they're changing. You know, they have to change the way they interact. For example, online and who they interact with online. Um, for especially the younger younger kids, one of the first things that the Imam try to do is actually get them to engage in a lot more um, offline conversations and spend less time online. And part of it is to actually change who they're interacting with because it, it really makes such a, such a difference when, you know, for especially like teenagers and they're so impressionable. You know, 15, 16 year old, you, you don't, you know, you, you want to know who they're engaging with. And when they're engaging with people online, you have no idea what they can be pulled into. So, yes. So, as you said, is it this or that? It's usually this and that. And, and the and is, is a gamut of things. So it's uh it's humans right exactly there's so many <laughs> it's humans, and some of them are very young humans and they are full of passion and full of emotion and we can completely disagree with them but we still have to treat them like humans so we can get them to 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 just step back from where things are We also have to give them um we can't i think part of it is that we also can't treat them as children because they're not um so we have to deal with the fact that they are they're young, they're learning, they're looking for information, they're hungry for information, they might be misled, but they're still like if you can get them to start thinking critically and examine and, and those things, that actually becomes important. So they understand where they are being um, where they're being pulled in or how they've been deceived. Um, I actually teach also a workshop specifically on teaching youth how to build their own counter narratives, push back against hate and extremism. And one of the first things in that is actually teaching them about the archetypes of hate speech, which are used to incite violence. And it is an eye-opening moment for, for these young people to recognize when they're recognizing, they see these patterns, for them to recognize, this is how I've been manipulated they, for the most part, they don't even realize how they've been manipulated. But once they can start to identify it, then it makes them rethink of what they have actually been taught and by whom. And the way we for these workshops, right, and then it goes into actually how do you build your own counter narrative and actually skill building around, okay, how do you push back? Should you push back, right? When do you push back and how to push back and, you know, how would you build your own message, and we teach these workshops and part of this has been that they have to uh, we prefer it what has been more effective is you train the trainers and then have the youth teach their peers mm-hmm. and then for, when the, when they're teaching their peers when they're building they constructing their own uh, workshops to teach their own to teach their peers it's always interesting to see what are the the pieces that they want to for sure include in their customized workshops because again, for each community or different communities and neighborhoods, are different the different needs. And you know, when I first introduced this segment of you know identifying hate, um, hate speech, these archetypes of hate speech, you know, I thought I thought this was like okay, this is an important part, but I th- I figured this is one of the most boring parts of it, right? You okay? You have to go through this so you can get to the other stuff on how to use social media for or designing initiatives and how you do you know, design your own initiatives and counter What was amazing is across the board, everyone who wanted to run their own workshop after that, that was the one piece they wanted to include. Mm-hmm. And some of them are using it because their peers they know have been pulled into like political, um, pulled in by political uh, interests. Others wanted to use it for um, interfaith con- conflict. Others wanted to use it for intra-faith conflict. So it's just amazing to see how each, you know, for each individual or for for the people who were involved, how they it was it was really an eye-opening moment for them to realize or to recognize, hey, those words are here, right? They are actually way more effective, and they're manipulating me in directions I had not realized. And then that gives them a sense of control and empowerment on, okay, well, I can actually, I can be more deliberate in how I respond. And what am I going to do? Because for us, the idea is that, you know, youth, youth are, you know we, we talk about youth and this, this, oh, these poor things, but they also, literally, I mean, these are our future. These guys are our future, right? They are the ones who are going to be taking the lead on it. So if you can give them the tools to actually help themselves, Right. And help their own peers. I mean, it's nothing better than that.
0: No, I think that's right there. That is such a key, too. And it's so fascinating because something in my own research, looking at people from more Western countries that have gone to fight in Syria and Iraq, there tends to be almost this group aspect. So maybe three three guys that know each other and, and they go. Um, you're seeing this in Minnesota, too, with... Um, things like um, Douglas MacArthur MacArthur McCain, there seems to be a connection that some of these other men that have also left Minnesota have known each other. They either went to school together, but there's these connections. You're seeing this in in some of the Canadian cases as well. So for youth to actually build a connection together, but with a positive meaning encountering, as you said, this hate speech right there to me, that's gold. That's really helping to heal this problem. And if they get it down in their group, they can, pass that gift on to, as you said, youth that might be being coerced or pulled in a direction um, towards leaving to fight overseas.
1: Yeah, definitely. In fact, in Minnesota, I mean, we hear we heard about these two guys, right? Because they were killed fighting definitely, for ISIS. Yes. In, in May, we had 12 youth from Minnesota who left. And they didn't go to fight, the, uh, to join the Shabab in Somalia. They actually went to... Uh, they actually went to Syria, mm-hmm. um, and so and this this is from the Somali diaspora. And so you know, before we when we saw that first wave of, of uh, uh, from who who went from Minneapolis from the Minneapolis the Greater Minneapolis area, um, there was about twenty of them who had gone, and this is a few years ago. But this last wave of twelve of them just left this name. Um, And that's that's very recent. And again, the shift that they would actually go, they would go join a conflict which is not theirs. Right. And this was a shift because before you could we could talk about, you know, we would often talk about in terms of the diaspora, or the pull of the diaspora. like the diaspora tries to go back to the country of origin and tries to engage or tries to, you know, they feel like there's something they can contribute to the country that they came from. But here they've pulled in a completely different direction mm-hmm. for a conflict, which has nothing to do with them. And yet they feel like they can, they should contribute to us. I was actually talking to a family member of, um, one of a youth who was, uh, intercepted and ended up not going. And I mean, literally his, his thing is, um, we need help. And that's the one thing he's, they've said, and they've said it before as well. It's like, look, our community needs help. And everyone talks about oh something should be done, but there's to look at okay who's actually doing something and is willing to go and actually spend the time and do you know actually work with the community. There isn't very many. We have a whole lot of researchers who are examining the phenomena, right? They're putting out papers on the research on well this is what is happening, but in terms of well how are we going to help that community? Literally, they feel like they have been ignored and they have just been left. Um, so it's, it's quite, uh, it's it's really unfortunate because, you know, you see the community, you see the community asking for help, right? And they're saying, okay, we, we know we have a need. And then in the past, I, I've gone and I've, I've trained some of the imams. And what was really interesting was that the imams wanted to take the curriculum as teaching so they could teach it themselves. And they're recognizing the need for it you know, within it, it's just that the, they have limited resources, and they don't. You know, they 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 don't have the internal expertise.
0: See to me. So this is my
1: this is my call to everyone that yeah, like we need help, right? This whole world of countering violent extremism, this world of trying to prevent youth from going off and joining conflicts and going off and towards violent extremism, is not something which like it can be done, for example, only from within the, the Muslim community. It actually needs the help of society as a whole. And we each have a different role to play in it, for sure. But it is something that we actually need to come together on and actually deal with. Because it's not that it's an unsolvable problem. Yes, it's a wicked problem. Yes, it's it's very hard to deal with. Um, and it has it's messy, and it takes resources, and it takes time, etc. But, you know, if you can stop even one person from going that's
0: success. Mm-hmm. I completely with, agree with you. And it's sad that there aren't more of these programs that are being set up when we see warning signs like Minnesota and um, you know, there's other countries overseas that you see warning signs as well, because more and more young people are leaving. And to me, that right there is helping, as you say, produce a brighter future. And, you know, we have all these young people that are, have gone to Syria or, Syria or Iraq and, the one thing that I constantly think of by looking at that is these people are so young and if they survive and they keep being indoctrinated into this hate mindset, you know, the next generation of their children is going to be raised that way as well. And that right there is just so scary. It's so sickening. It's so wrong that you sit there and you think there's got to be a way of maybe you can't you can't prevent everyone from going down that path, but there has to be a way to change this and and be a positive instead of a negative towards it. Um, One thing I want to ask, which I've never asked a guest, but I feel like because of your work, you're a great guest to ask this. So for maybe people that might be listening that have a friend or a co-worker or someone at school that might be hinting or even joking about going off to Syria, you know, how how can you tell if your friend is just joking because it might sound cool, but really probably has no real thought of going? And how can you tell when someone really definitely is at that point where they need help or are they at that point when they're even joking?
1: Um, talk to them. This might sound very flip, but actually have an open dialogue and be able to have a conversation. Uh, and, Again, if you're talking about an actual friend, you might have a better idea of if they are joking, and some people might joke. It's a strange thing to joke about, but you know, there's no accounting for um, taste. Or you might realize that they're trying to hide something. But I think the, the important thing is to not ignore it. Um, often, when people, for the people who are actually seriously considering it, uh, okay. So first of all, it's not an overnight thing. It's not like okay, a person decides okay today. Today everything is fine and tomorrow I'm going to go and I want to go fight in Syria. Right? It's not it's not an overnight thing, it takes time. So presumably if someone is saying that now I'm not talking about in the joking sense, but if someone is actually seriously considering it, for them by the time they raise that issue, they might there must have been other things which have been happening. So it's usually not the first sign that okay, I'm going to go off and fight. You might see a change in the way in how or hardening in their positions on things like conflict, in, in their position on the use of violence in terms of the the sense of helplessness or they feel about or about you know, the need to help us the particular conflict, but the helplessness by staying here and doing it. That it's not possible that the regular ways aren't working. So you might actually have heard some of that before. Because deciding to go up and fight doesn't is not the first place. It's not where you start. So there's things which happen before that. The other thing which of, which happens often, actually, similar to people who are getting uh, pulled into gangs or people who are being who are being groomed by even pedophiles, is that isolation and how they start to separate themselves off and they they change some of their social network because they want fewer people who know them or. Who know them, or are close to them, because uh, the need for secrecy grows, uh, and so you might actually see changes in some of those behaviors as well. Mm-hmm. But first thing is, if you're seeing a shift and you're concerned about it, get help, mm-hmm. right? Don't ignore it. Talk to the person, talk to people around, see what help you can get. I mean, the communities actually have resources um, now, especially for younger ones. Talk to youth groups about you know similar things, things to look for. And what was interesting is that in one youth group I was talking to, her, this, I think she was 16 or 17 years old. Right? And I was talking to her, like, if you start to see these particular types of changes, right? The person withdrawing, um, looking for more changing sort of their, their friends and those, those things. And the person, one girl, she got, she gets up and says, you know, a friend of mine committed suicide. And these were exactly the same things I saw in her, but I didn't, think I should have done any I didn't know I could do something about it or that she was going to do it and she was like you know if I had known that if I see these things I should try and talk to her or get help for her it, it might have saved her and so that's the thing for especially at the younger age these are very similar the first signs right the first red flags which go up are very similar to the same things that you see when people are pulled into gangs or in other types of um, I guess social vices or or not good things, or, for example, that they are, you know, they are, they need help. You know, some of these things are just get help. There are resources out there for, for kids who are in school. There are various types of counselors and counseling, which is available. Um, there is spiritual counseling, there's social counseling, a whole lot of things. As people are older, you have different resources which might be available. You have different community resources um, and if you actually think someone is about to do something wrong, like actually like, go off and fight, or you think they're going to actually hurt someone, call law enforcement. Mm-hmm. At that stage, I mean, there's no two ways about it. Call law enforcement. It doesn't matter who the kid is. It doesn't matter who the youth is or the person is. It doesn't matter if they're a family, your friends, your parents, whatever. If you think someone is actually going to hurt someone else, you have to call law enforcement right away. Um, deal with the consequences later. It is very important that you stop the person from hurting people first, right? Safety
0: first. Very wise words, exactly. <laughs> so um, to kind of bring this talk to a conclusion, I always like to give our guests a moment to touch on something that we might not have touched on or a final thought. So I want to hand it over to you, Mira.
1: Um Let's see. Ah, oh, wow. This is this. Okay. I, I think the, what I'd like to leave people with is that we are in this together and we need to, to really come together and actually try and help the situation. Because there's definitely ways of dissuading people from going off, um, and joining ISIS. But we actually need to be willing to do it. And it's, it's not a short-term thing. It takes time. It takes resources, but help Right, I think it's important for all of us to step up. It's everyone's responsibility to have a, a part in this. It is not just someone else's problem. And I think once we we are willing to step up and work together, there's a lot of there's a lot of good which can come, and there's a lot of bad which can be avoided. And I think. Yep. Thank you very much for the opportunity to actually like address the topic.
0: Well, no, thank you. It's been a fascinating talk. Um, I'd love to keep talking, but we always have a certain amount of time. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think your last words were very wise, and that's a great way to end this talk. So thank you so much, and have a good evening.
1: Thank you, See You too.